Father, we're grateful for giving us your written word, for preserving it. And today, years after Scripture was given, we can read your word and learn about you, Christ, your spirit at work in us. As we interact concerning translations today, what is involved in translating Scripture, we want to be open, sensitive to you, for it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. As I mentioned last week, doing a series, probably a week or two, just concerning Bible translations, and part of the reason we're doing that is because the NIV that has been around for many years is no longer available. They have ceased to print that. The NIV 11 is currently available. So since we have been using NIV, thought it would be profitable to take some time to discuss Bible translations on Lord willing next Sunday or the following Sunday, or maybe a combination of the two, we'll be drawing some conclusions, you know, where we would be as a church as it relates to NIV 11 and so on. But as we think about translations, seeking to take a little time on just what is involved in translating. And I would pose a question as we begin, why even listen to what I have to say this morning? I will give you some reasons to listen. First of all, to live in light of facts, not hearsay. Years ago, someone said to me, Pastor so-and-so thinks this way about Scripture. I said, who told you? Well, I heard it. So I called pastor so-and-so, and I said, do you think this about Scripture? This is what I heard. He said, no, that is not true. That's not what I think about Scripture. I said, thank you. Someone else came up to me a few years back and said, pastor so-and-so thinks this about a particular situation. And I said, who told you? And they said, so-and-so. So I called the pastor and I said, is this what you think about a certain situation? He said, yes, that is true. Two ladies are talking about shopping. And the one says, I got this item on sale at the same store you got your item on sale and this is what I paid. And the other lady said, no, I paid this. And they ended up in arguing, argument as to what they paid. Why don't they get the sales or the slip out, the receipt, and see what they paid? Check the facts. Just this week, as I listened to a tidbit of news, something was said about President Obama being a socialist. Now, some people would say President Obama is a socialist, and some would say he is not a socialist. I'm not here to debate which way or what is true, but how about checking out the facts? What's his voting record? What does he say? And so on. So what are the facts as it relates to Bible translation and so on? Also, to be a local church of integrity. What we say, what we seek to do, seeking to be correct in light of history. I found it interesting in relation to the Bible translation issue. I read an account of what was happening with the Southern Baptist that they voted have a resolution concerning the NIV 11 translation. 
I chose to check out a little history on that. What was not stated that the resolution was made from the floor by a pastor who had not checked out anything concerning the NIV 11. It was voted on during the convention without people having opportunity to check out the pros or cons of the NIV 11, and they made a decision. Now, there are some people saying we should not have responded the way we did. So integrity, just you know, what is important in light of history. A few years back, there were some things in relation to the Northwest contract talks. You may remember that. The things were being said, the teachers think this, school board thinks this. I read the paper, I'd been to a few school board meetings, so I talked to some teachers, and I called school board people and said, where are you at? And then I said, here's what the facts are. I wanted to be a person of integrity and as a church doing the same thing. And just to be for, informed about history, the King James Version of the Bible has stood the test of time, has been around for many years. But in relation to history, do we realize that the King James Version was revised at least five times? You know, just knowing what history says. Do you know that the King James Version, the 1611 Version, had the Apocrypha in it? You know, the books between the New and Old Testament that are not in the Bible today. They're not in your King James Bible today because they were taken out for the 1769 translation. Why was that done? What does history say? There's a reason why they were taken out. But again, just to be accurate, to be informed about history. Why did Jesus quote from the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation, rather than from the original Hebrew? When Jesus is on this earth, he quoted from the Septuagint. He didn't quote from the Hebrew Bible. You know, the Bible in the Old Testament was given primarily in Hebrew, some in Aramaic. Why did he quote from the Septuagint, which was a translation? rather than from the original Hebrew. Again, some questions that I'm not going to try to answer this morning, to think about history, to understand history and respond accordingly. Remember, there is no perfect translation. God has preserved his word in written form. And I think there are a number of good translations available today, a number being reliable. As I mentioned last week, and want to reiterate this, that the standard in Bible translation is not the New International Version of the Bible. It's not the King James Bible. It's not the English Standard Bible. It's not the New American Standard Bible. It's not the New King James Bible. To compare one translation with another to determine if it is a good translation is not wise. No translation should be the standard find some way or find someone that can go back to the original languages. It is the original languages in which scripture was written. So when someone says, well, the NIV says this, the King James says this, the New American Standard says this, what does the original language say? I found it quite interesting as I read some in preparing for this to read in a book Here's what 
this translation says. And they were referring to specific translation. I thought, I'm going to go back and check the Greek. So I did, and I thought, that wasn't correct. I don't know what they were comparing with, but in later Greek, it was not correct. Other ones, I said, I went back to the Greek. Yeah, they're right on target. Thus, a question for any translation is, is it faithful in communicating the meaning of the original language? We're not language scholars. We have to take the word, trusted word of some people, but again, I think we can find people that are reliable. Now, some basic language facts. Gender does not equal sex when it comes to language. So if someone says, this word is masculine, that doesn't necessarily mean it's referring to a male person. Because there's words that have nothing to do with male and female that are male, or I mean masculine, or feminine. So the gender does not equal sex. Gender, when it comes to scripture translation, is referring to grammar. And grammar does not refer to biological, you know, sexually, what someone is. So Hebrew has two genders, masculine and feminine. Greek has three genders, masculine, feminine, and neuter. But when you hear those terms, don't immediately think, well, male, female. No, we're talking grammar. It's different. Some language facts are Hebrew and Greek have genders. This is grammatical gender, not biological gender or sexual distinction. So some examples. The Greek word for sword is feminine. You say, is a sword female? That's not a relevant question. It's just the way language is. Greek word for book is masculine. Another word for book or scroll is neuter, and the Greek word for children is neuter. Since grammatical gender does not necessarily coincide with biological gender, it's necessary to carefully consider words in context to determine their meaning. Thousands of examples could be introduced to show that using inclusive language for masculine generic terms in Hebrew and Greek improves the accuracy of the Bible translation. We're not talking about taking a word that is referring to a male and making it male or female. That's not what we're talking about here, okay? We're saying there are words in Scripture that may be masculine generic terms that can be translated masculine, but it does not mean biological male. So first of all, man or person. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. <clears throat> be referring to a variety of passages, and I realize we're leaping into a context, but in Matthew 12, Jesus 
is dealing with the Lord of the Sabbath. And in Matthew 12 and verse 12, well, let's begin with verse 11. He said to them, if any of you has a sheep that falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. When it says in verse 12, how much more valuable is a man than a sheep? He's not referring to a literal male. The Greek terminology can refer to a person. Man is used in the NIV, and I think it is also used in the King James. But it's referring to a person, male or female. In Mark 10, 26 and 27, Mark 10, 26 or 27, <clears throat> we find that Jesus is speaking to the rich young ruler. And you know, the rich young ruler came up to him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And in the response, we find that in verse 26, after Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 26 says, the disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible, or all things are possible with God. In 27, when Jesus says, with man, with a person, it's not referring to a literal male, referring to a person. <clears throat> the Hebrew term for Adam can be speaking of people, can be referring to a male, or it might be referring to Adam himself. The same term. Context. It's important. Just facts of language. And when I used earlier inclusive language, we're not trying to change gender when I use that term at all. It's merely saying some words can refer to male or female, can refer to a person in general. Let's look at another example. A Greek word, the plural Adelphoi, can refer to brothers, male siblings. Can refer to siblings, brothers, or sisters. Or can refer to people in some other close bond or association. Let's go to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 to see an example. Philippians 4 and verse 1. <clears throat> Paul had just finished discussing pressing on towards a goal. And he says in Philippians 4 and verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, this is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Now notice, he says, therefore, my brothers. Adelphoi. Is he speaking of merely men? Now let's let the context speak. 
Look at verse 2. I plead with Uadiah, and I plead with Sennacherib to agree with one another in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Therefore, my dear brothers, he could equally say, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters. He's referring to people in some close bond because in verse 2 he talks about sisters. He's not changing something that if brothers and sisters were used, it would not change what the Greek is communicating, going back to the original language again. Let's go to another passage, 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. 1 John chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. John seems to be having quite a bit to say how people can know that they're believers in Christ. And he says in 1 John 2, Verse 9, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in dark, the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded him. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother... The Greek term is referring to someone in close relationship or a bond or association. Be referring to believers and their relationship with, to one another. It could be a male, it could be a female. If we limit it to male, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother, that means I can hate Ruth Ann and not be in trouble. No, she's my sister. And on the Lord. The terminology in the context is referring to someone in close relationship. So anyone who hates his brother or sister. Again, we're talking just facts as it relates to terminology in Scripture. Father, fathers, or ancestors may refer to an actual father, a male parent. It may refer to mothers and fathers. It may refer to ancestors, male and female, including several generations. Let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel chapter 12. <clears throat> First Samuel chapter 12. <clears throat> and this is Samuel's farewell speech. No, he is going to pass off the scene soon. And in First Samuel 12 and verse 6. Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your forefathers up out of Egypt. Now then stand here because I'm going to confront you with the evidence before the Lord as to the righteous acts performed by the Lord 
for you and your fathers. Okay, when he says there in verse 6, it is the Lord who anointed Moses and Aaron and brought your forefathers. He'd be referring to people who came before the children of Israel at this point in time. Forefathers, ancestors, and so on. Turn to Deuteronomy 6 while we're in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 10. <clears throat> Talking about loving the Lord your God you know, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. In Deuteronomy 6 and verse 10, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you a land with the large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of goods you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Notice, Hebrew word, he swore to your fathers, and fathers should be used here because it's referring to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Again, can refer to fathers, forefathers, or ancestors. Now let's go back to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, and verse 23. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 23, what I would call the... God's hall of fame, you know, as far as people who walk by faith. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 23. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because that he was no ordinary, saw he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses' parents. Again, a terminology that's referring to Moses' parents. Different words depending on the context as to how they should be translated. Another thing concerning language, sons, children, or descendants. The common Hebrew and Greek words can mean different things. Common Hebrew Greek words for children, descendants, sons, can mean sons, can mean children, grandchildren, descendants, sons of prophets, children of Israel, occurs 60, 660, or 644 times in the King James Version. Depends on the context. Now, while we're in the New Testament, let's go over to Matthew 44 and 45. Matthew 44 and 45. <clears throat> Matthew 44 and 45. <clears throat> Jesus is talking about loving your enemies, and he says in verse 43... Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, 
that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? If you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's pretty strong words there if you just take them and seek to respond to them and live in light of them. But notice in verse 44, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. The Greek word for sons there is not referring to literally male children. It can, and at times it's translated children, that you may be a son or daughter, if you please, or a child of God in heaven. Again, that's just one of the basics. Now go back to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. We find that God is going to speak through Isaiah. and God has some pretty strong things to say through Isaiah. He has some very encouraging things to say through Isaiah. But Isaiah 1. And... Verse 1, the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reign of Uzziah, Jotham, Azariah, and Hezekiah, or Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken, I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The children he would be referring to would be the Israelites. He reared them up, but they rebelled against him, and Isaiah rebukes them very strongly. So son, children, or descendants, the common Hebrew words, are translated in a variety of ways. Jesus Christ was certainly a man, a male, in light of scripture, does any attempt to remove masculine language related to Jesus? When I say masculine language, I'm talking about him being a male. Should be avoided. Let's go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. <clears throat> Romans chapter 5, and I'll begin reading with verse 12. Romans 5 and verse 12. <clears throat> Romans 5 and verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in the same way death came to all men, because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more God's grace and the gift that came by Christ overflow to many. Again, the gift of God 
is not like the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by trespass of one man death reign through the one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Terminology referring clearly to Jesus Christ, who was the Son of God. A translation that tampers with that would be tampering with some very serious items. And the same thing is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where it talks about Christ being the first fruits to come from the dead. And it talks about the first man and the second man. Again, we're dealing with terms that cannot shift. And I might say in relation to what we are discussing as a concerning Jesus Christ, I don't know of any translation that would shift that or make any attempt to shift that. No, any translation that we would consider no worthy and we would use today. And the same would be true of many other things that we have been saying along the way that in most translations they recognize that there are just some facts involved in language. And as they're translated, those are weighed, whether it be King James or whether it be New American Standard, English Standard, NIV, and so on. Couple of comments, not on the history of King James, but uh, just some linguistic and translation theory. Couple items, then we'll wrap it up. There are two general approaches to translating scripture. First of all, it's formal equivalence. This is a translation approach that seeks to reproduce the grammatical and syntactical form of the donor language as closely as possible in the receptor language. Now I'll try to explain this. Thus, for each word in the donor language, that's what you're translating from, the same part of speech is used in the receptor language and as much as possible in the same sequence. Now please keep in mind there is no such a thing as a word-for-word translation. You can't go from one language to another word-for-word. You know, it just, well, you can, but you're not going to make any sense out of it. So that's formal equivalence. You have functional equivalence, which is a translation approach that focuses more on the meaning and attempts to accurately communicate the same meaning in the receptor language, even if doing so requires the use of different grammatical and syntactical forms. Although the forms may differ in the functional equivalence, the translation functions the same as the original and communicates the meaning. I'm going to read a quote from Rod Decker, prophet, Baptist Bible Seminary, and I would say he's a good Greek scholar. And I quote, there are two approaches, or these two approaches are not to be thought of as mutually exclusive categories. All translations include both formal and functional equivalents. There is no spec or there is a spectrum 
with formal equivalents on one end, functional equivalents on the other. Any individual who translates, I'm sorry, any individual translation may be judged to a greater or lesser degree of formal or functional equivalence, and thus fall on a different part of the translation spectrum. End of quote. So here's a chart with more formal, you know, more word for word on this end, more functional tied in more with meaning. You can see that the King James is more formal. The New King James is more formal. The Revised Standard Version, the English Standard Version, and the New Revised Standard along with the New American Standard tend to be more formal. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, the NIV and the NIV 11, are more in the middle. More formal, more functional, kind of in the middle. And then we have several translations. New Living Translation, can't remember the NCV, uh, what that is. They tend to be more functional. And please understand, there is no such a thing as a totally formal translation. Now just to illustrate that, <clears throat> Matthew 1:18 is going to appear on the wall. Literal word order. Take the Greek, English. Now of Jesus Christ, the birth thus was. Having been bethrobbed for his mother Mary to Joseph, before came together, they, she, was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. I'm asking this in all sincerity. How many of you would like to wade through the New Testament like that? Translation is not. Just saying we have a choice between formal and functional. Your King James Bible, your English Standard Version, the NIV, Holman Christian Standard, New Living Translation would involve some of both. Obviously, some lean more towards formal, others towards functional. So someone says, my translation is formal. It may lean that way, but it's not totally formal. Well, my translation is functional. It may lean that way, but it's not totally functional. That's just a fact of language. Strauss, and I quote, says, some critics have claimed that the only way to protect the verbal and plenary inspiration of scripture is to translate literally. This is, of course, linguistic nonsense. The translation that best preserves the verbal and plenaria, plenar inspiration of scripture is the one that clearly and accurately communicates the meaning of the text as the original author intended it to be heard. The Greek idioms that Paul or John or Luke used did not sound awkward, obscure, or stilted, or stilted to the original readers. They sounded like normal, idiomatic Greek. Verbal and plenary inspiration is most respected when we allow the meaning of the text 
to come through. End of quote. Again, just a fact concerning translation. And next week, Lord willing, share a few other things and say some more about a number of translations, including the NIV 11, and some of the things that have been said about various translations, whether it be the NIV, NIV 11, the English Standard Version, some pretty strong things said about the King James and so on. Again, checking history, checking language reality, and then from that, drawing some conclusions. If you hear something about the NIV or NIV 11, I guess I should say NIV 11, my encouragement is simply to check out the source, whether it is factual or not. And if you say, I'm not sure where to find out, I'm willing to find out. Some things were said about the English Standard Version years ago. Check out the source, check out what is true. There are good translations. Those that have been around for a period of time, King James Version, New International Version, English Standard, English Standard Bible, New American Standard Bible, just to name some good translations. And as I said, Lord willing, next two Sunday mornings, don't want to go beyond that, Lord willing, just draw some conclusions as it relates to the NIV.